Hello and welcome to the Aura of Greatness podcast, episode 1.13, The Small Things of War. Last time, we finally launched the Cuban Revolution. This time, we will begin with a brief discussion of our sources, and then we will join Che on his trek from the site of the ambush into the safety of the Sierra Maestro. As we have exited the pre-revolution stage of Che's life and entered into the Cuban Revolution, I thought it would be helpful to take a moment to discuss sources. I will occasionally use other sources or mention other sources throughout the revolution, but there are a few that will be mainstays in each of our episodes. The first source is a primary source written by Che Guevara himself titled Episodes of the Cuban Revolution. This is Che's official version of the war, and by official version, I don't mean that it was his version. Instead, it was his edited version that was then passed on to a Cuban official for further edits and approval. After it was approved, it was given to the publishers. However, Che and the Cuban official were not just writing this version to tell the story, but rather to enter a version into the new government's official propaganda machine. Everyone knows the old adage that history is written by the winners. Well, this version perfectly falls into that category. The Castro administration was committed to controlling the narrative of the Cuban Revolution. We will see Fidel dictate time and again throughout the war what type of information to release to the public, and this habit continued long after the war. Fidel, Che, and the other leaders wanted to cast the revolution in a certain light, and they used this publication to do so. Che's Episodes of the Cuban Revolution is a vital piece to controlling the narrative. Che was the perfect person to provide the story. He was well-educated, and he had a way with the pen. He had a flair for poetic language that captured its audience and made them trust the author. We previously discussed the Motorcycle Diaries, and I have shared some of his poems he wrote. Che's words are a big piece of his enduring legacy, and that all started with episodes. Episodes of the Cuban Revolution provide stories of heroics, it provides lessons for the good kinds of peasants and the bad kinds, and it gives people of Cuba someone to associate with and admire. Che had already caught the public's imagination, as he was not only an Argentine fighting for Cuba, but he'd also worked his way to being Fidel's right-hand man. Episodes showed Che to be the hero the Cubans thought he was, and from that time forward, his face would be plastered all around Cuba's streets. In a way, his book became not only a book that showed what it was like fighting for the revolution, but also provided examples of how, even if you did not fight, you could live a life that fully embraced the new Cuba. So, while we will have to be mindful of this source and remember the ulterior motives, Episodes is still one of the most valuable resources we have for knowing what our subject was up to throughout the war. The next source was also written by Che. Diary of a Combatant, as the name implies, was Che's wartime journal. It depicts the first three months in more explicit detail. However, this diary was also first edited by Che, and then by the Cuban government to scrub it of unflattering details and to hide certain identities. I won't always explicitly mention it, but please keep that in mind anytime I mention one of these two sources. The Cuban Revolution was fought from the time the grandma landed on December 2, 1956, until the army took the capital on January 1, 1959. That is only about 60 years ago, and due to that time period being so recent, we have access to a plethora of primary source documents, including video news reports, newspaper articles, radio broadcasts, and magazine articles, among others. This was well within the period of worldwide news, and that gives us an access to information about events that any ancient world historian would kill for. However, as we are often reminded today, we have to be careful with news organizations or mass media that tries to spit out news as quickly as possible. They would go out of business if they let the news turn into the olds. That is how we often get what is referred to as yellow journalism, 
but today more often is derisively referred to as fake news. With the power of retrospective, we know that some of the broadcasts and articles got things wrong. This sometimes occurred due to Batista lying or using propaganda to not allow nationwide panic. He often claimed that the rebel suppression was far more successful than it was, including multiple claims that his army had captured or killed Fidel Castro. The lies and propaganda did not only come from the Batista camp, and next episode we will see one of the most famous examples of Fidel's use of the media to help his campaign. Therefore, we will sometimes use the primary sources to track movements or provide unique pictures or videos, but more than anything, the news and media are helpful in determining worldwide reaction to the rebellion, rather than knowing what the rebels were doing. The next source has been with us since the beginning and will remain with us until the end. John Lee Anderson's biography, Che Guevara, A Revolutionary Life. This biography was published in 1997, so there have been some updates and other sources in the past 20 years, but is often cited as the most complete Che biography. Anderson conducted an extensive amount of research and provides excellent insight into our subject. In addition to interviews and traveling to Cuba to see things firsthand, Anderson also states in his book that he was granted access to an unedited and raw version of Che's battle diary. He provides details for events that are sometimes left a bit vaguer in the official accounts. Beyond my interest in Che, another subject that I have studied rather extensively is the Old West lawman Wyatt Earp. There are a multitude of books about that man, and in the historiography of the story, a biographer by the name of Glenn Boyer published a book called I Married Wyatt Earp. In it, he reports new findings of a memoir of Earp's third wife, Josephine Earp. The memoir has since been proven to be fraudulent and have been a complete fabrication by Boyer. But when the book was first published, it was deemed a revelation and quickly became the second best-selling book about Wyatt Earp. You may be asking yourself, why is he telling me this blurb about Glenn Boyer and Wyatt Earp? Well, it is that special access that John Lee Anderson reports that he was granted. How do we know he did not just make stuff up? How do we know that he did not pull a Glenn Boyer? The truth is we do not know, but having read Anderson's book and having researched other sources, I do not find a reason not to believe Anderson. This is partially because he is pretty transparent for when he is relying on the unpublished, non-publicly accessible journal and when he is looking at other sources. Also, what he reports makes sense and is consistent with the historical record. Further, the Cuban government and Che's widow have never tried to claim that Anderson was wrong with what he found. They don't claim that he was right, but it could be one of those confirmations through silence things. Finally, it should be noted that any source, no matter how reliable, is fraught with problems. This can be seen if you ever go to court and watch three different witnesses describe the same crime differently, even though all three of them were there, and all of them think that they are telling the truth. There is human error in remembering, and in reporting what happened. Anderson may have had Che's unedited diary, but that does not mean that Che was always right, or that Che wrote everything down, or even that Che was always truthful to himself. We must still look at this source with the same critical eye as we would look at any other source. All of this to say, I believe that the diary provided to John Lee Anderson was authentic and that he did not fabricate any of it. There are various histories of Cuba, biographies of Che, memoirs by people involved, and many other sources that I do not want to bore you with that were used to create as full of a portrait as possible. In that goal, I have also used sources, such as those of Umberto Fantova, that are very critical of Che and Castro's Cuba, as a means of presenting as accurate a story as possible. I'm not trying to glorify or demonize, but rather to report accurately. I'll provide the actions of the war. I'll leave it to you to apply the morals. If you'd like to discuss sources any further, you can send me an email at auraofgreatnesspodcast at gmail.com 
or you can message me on Twitter, at TrapStory. Otherwise, let's get back to our narrative. At the end of episode 12, I briefly described the ambush at the Alegria de Pio, and how Che was wounded by a ricochet bullet. This was Che's first brush with combat, and first of many near-death experiences, as when you're fighting a guerrilla war, you're always kind of near death. As we know, the vast majority of the Grandma Expeditionaries died in that ambush, or in the few days immediately following. In the aftermath, Batista reported that he had achieved total victory over the insurgents. He published reports that stated that Fidel Castro had been killed in the ambush, and among the other people listed as dead was Ernesto Guevara. One of the harsh realities of war, regardless of which side you are on, is that there is a lot of death. In due time, plenty will face that reality at the hands of our man Che. However, before we get to those that Che killed, let's take a step back out of Cuba. As you'll remember, Che left his wife and baby girl in Mexico, and the rest of his family in Argentina. Like the rest of the world, Che's family learned of the ambush and received the reports of the deaths through various news reports. In her memoir, Hilda describes the scene of how she heard the news as follows. When I arrived at work, I found everyone with solemn looks. There was an embarrassed silence, and I wondered what was happening. Then I became conscious that everyone was looking at me. A fellow co-worker handed me a newspaper and said, We are very sorry about the news. After that, she was given leave to go home for the day and spent the next two weeks in a state of distress. No news came to confirm her husband's death, but no news came to confirm his life either. Distraught, she did her best to gather her and chase things. Her family had urged her to return home to Lima, where they could help care for her during her time of grief. She agreed to return to Peru and eventually would depart Mexico City on December 17, 1956. Hilda returned home with her 10-month-old, still unsure if she remained a married woman or if she had become a widowed woman. A combination of stress, grief, and the hectic move saw Hilda give away or abandon several of her and Che's possessions in Mexico. This resulted in many of Che's early letters, poems, and other writings being lost to the dustbin of history. In Argentina, the general reaction by the Guevara family was disbelief. They struggled with the common stages of grief. Anger that the son or brother who had so impressed them by attaining his degree in medicine would throw all of his potential away on a cause that was not his and in a foreign country where there would be no benefit. Denial saw Guevara Lynch rush down to La Prensa, the local newspaper, and Celia, Che's mother, call the Associated Press to receive confirmation. Neither news agency had the ability nor the authority to provide confirmation, so instead of being able to move into acceptance, they were stuck in the purgatory of grief. I bring up Che's family's reaction, not because I want you to feel bad for them, but instead that I think it is important to remember the human element in all of this. Che is running off to make history, but the people who loved him were in a constant state of worry. Try to remember that as we continue with the narrative, both for Che and the people Che will fight against. The Guevara family was among the lucky families, though. At around 10 p.m. on the night of New Year's Eve, an airmail letter arrived at the Guevara household and was addressed to Celia Madre and sent from Manzanillo, Cuba. I have always wondered how one would have the time to send a letter when one is a guerrilla fighter, but you know, it happens. The letter was short and read simply. Dear old folks, I am perfectly fine. I spent two and I have five left. I am still doing the same work. News is sporadic and will continue to be, but I have faith that God is an Argentine. A big hug to you all. Signed, Titi. Titi, as you may remember, was Che's boyhood nickname. The two and five thing is apparently in reference to the number of lives a cat has, and in saying this, he was basically saying he had used two of his cat lives, but was fine. Whether Che believed that cats had seven lives instead of the common nine, 
or if there was a family inside joke that he had already used two and now had used two more and only had five left is something we do not know. The long story short, though, he had a couple close calls, but he was fine. The Guevara family rejoiced and celebrated New Year's without restraint. All right, without further ado, let's get this revolution started. First, a very brief recap of the disastrous start to Fidel's Cuban Revolution. The passage from Mexico aboard the Grama took longer than planned. This put them behind schedule. Then, they crashed into a sandbar which forced them ashore far away from the rendezvous point. Having missed the rendezvous point, the revolutionaries were left with no guides. With no guides, they ran into an ambush at the El Gria de Pio, and for the best chance of survival, were forced to separate into small groups. That brings us up to speed to where we left the revolution, so let us rejoin Che at this point. After being struck by a ricochet bullet, Che had fallen to the ground and believed that he was a goner. In that moment, he contemplated his inevitable death before he slunk backwards to prop his body against a tree so that he could meet his maker in a more dignified position. The Cubans, however, and more specifically Juan Almeida, was not done with him yet. Almeida grabbed Che, yanked him to his feet, and signaled to run. Almeida, Che, and three other survivors fled the ambush and would escape the field. The five of them would be separated from the rest of the party and would be left to their own devices to try to survive. The number of Grandma Expeditionary members who would survive the ambush and eventually be reunited is a little shrouded by mystery. There have been reports that it was 12 of the 82 original members, but many have dismissed this number as it seems to be a clear attempt to draw a connection with the 12 apostles. The most common and accepted number seems to be 22, but it could have been a few more or a few less. The most important casualty, as I mentioned last time, was the second in command, Juan Manuel. Batista's men were able to find the Grandma Expeditionaries for a couple different reasons. One, because they knew that they were coming, and two, because the group was not very good at hiding their path. They had gorged themselves in a sugarcane field and left a noticeable trace for the soldiers to find them. That made it very easy for the soldiers to set up an ambush in the sugarcane field at El Gria de Pio. The attack had started at approximately 4.30 p.m., and as the first shots rang out, Fidel had called for a retreat and made a headlong run into the safety of the forest. Some tried to follow, and some were frozen in fear. The machine gun bullets were indiscriminate about who they targeted. The guns did not stop until everyone had either dropped or fled to the forest. In the rush of confusions, those that did survive lost each other and were split into small groups. Of the individuals who were captured or surrendered, Batista ordered them summarily executed. Everyone else was left to their own devices to reach the Sierra Maestra. After the ambush, Che and his fellow comrades had stayed on the run all through the night until dawn. At that point, the five of them found a cave and decided the safest thing to do would be to seek refuge inside. Once inside the cave, they would get their bearing straights, rest a moment, and hope that their ambushers would pass them by. As they entered the cave, they made a pledge to one another. The pledge stated that if they were encircled in the cave, then they would fight to the death rather than surrender. Each knew in their hearts that there was no going back. They had committed and this is where they would draw the line. Better to die with a gun in their hands than on their knees. The situation, though, was rather dire. Che would record the following in his diary. We had a tin of milk and approximately one liter of water. We heard the noise of combat nearby. The planes machine gunned. We came out at night, guiding ourselves with the moon and north star until they disappeared, and then we slept. After waiting out the day in the cave, it was decided that it was time to get moving again. Too much time in one place would allow Batista's men the chance to catch them again. The five knew that the only way that they would survive this whole ordeal would be to find their way to the Sierra Maestra. The catch was that none of them were trackers, nor were they familiar with the area. The 
the only thing they did know is that the mountains were basically due east. On the positive side is that since they were forced to travel at night, they could use the moon and the north star to guide their path. After they exited the cave, it was Che who pointed to the sky to show the group the north star. Unfortunately, while Che had been very confident when he pointed, he did not quite remember his astronomy lessons as well as he had thought. After a couple days of trekking through the night, Che realized his mistake. He had not pointed out Polaris to the group. Instead, it had been total luck that the star that he had found just happened to lie in the northern portion of the sky. It has been said that it is better to be lucky than good. In life and death situations, I find that it is often luck that dictates survival. This is one of those times. As the five of them walked, someone accidentally spilled the milk. With the milk gone, they resisted drinking the liter of water they had for the first night. As they grew more and more dehydrated in the early hours of the morning, they spotted what appeared to be a freshwater pond at the bottom of a cliff. Immediately, they began attempting to locate a safe way down to the water. But before they could, they heard the sound of airplanes flying overhead. Instead of risking the discovery, the group took cover for the remainder of the daylight hours. The group shared the bottle of water throughout the day, and before long it was gone. By the time the sun set again, the group emerged from their hiding spot hungry and dehydrated. They ate the first thing they could find, a bunch of prickly pears. The pears did the trick and gave them enough fuel to continue. That night, the five happened upon a small hut where they found three more survivors from the grandma, and their little group grew to eight. The discovery of a few friendly faces briefly lifted their moods, but little changed over the next few days. The group still did not know how many of them survived, nor did they know if Castor was among that number. They could not call it quits yet, though. They figured capture meant certain death, so instead they continued to travel east each night under the cover of darkness. On December 13, 1956, after days of close calls and almost no food or water, morale was at a low point for the weary revolutionaries. It was then that they saw a farmer's house in the distance. After a short discussion, it was decided to approach. Che had protested the decision, but the rebels were desperate and felt the risk was worth the potential reward of finding a friendly peasant. The group knocked on the door and to their relief found a refuge. The owner of the house was a Seventh-day Adventist pastor and a member of the small but growing peasant network of the 26th of July movement. The pastor welcomed the rebels into his home warmly and gave them the exact cure for their morale problem, food, drink, and shelter. The days of hiking without food or water, however, had made their stomachs weak, and soon after gorging themselves on the pastor's hospitality, each member of the group grew sick. Che described the situation with his signature colorful language and dark humor. The little house that sheltered us turned into an inferno. Almeida was the first to be overcome by diarrhea, and, in a flash, eight unappreciative intestines gave evidence of the blackest ingratitude. The next day saw the men recovering from their feast and greeting a near-constant stream of curious peasants from the surrounding community and the pastor's church. The eight men were almost like celebrities, and they were able to use the peasant network that the pastor was tapped into to receive updates. It is through this stream of information that Che learned that 16 of his grandma companions were dead, having been executed immediately upon surrendering. Five were thought to have been taken captive alive. The total number of casualties was unknown at the moment. There was still no word on the status of Fidel. Throughout the days of hiking, Che and Almeida had assumed de facto leadership of the group. They decided it would be in the group's best interest to lay low with the trusted peasants for a couple days. It would give them the chance to refuel and to stay tapped into the peasant network. The group used the same method from the days in the safe houses in Mexico by having all eight of them stay in different houses in the area. That was a smart idea. A less smart idea was keeping all the guns and ammunition in the same house. A little weapons cache, if you will. 
The only weapons that were kept on their persons were a pistol each for Che and Almeida to mark their leadership status and provide a little chance for self-defense. The two leaders came up with a plan to travel incognito the rest of the way to the Sierra Maestra. The group would discard their uniforms and don the clothes of the Oriente presence. The plan was to hide in plain sight. They left their weapons behind in a makeshift weapons cache for safekeeping. Plus, the weapons would immediately give them away if they were spotted hiking through the region. One of the eight grandma survivors was also forced to stay behind in the village, as he had fallen ill and could go no further. Unfortunately for the man who stayed behind in the village, one of the peasants tipped off Batista's army to their location, and the soldiers arrived the same day the rest of the group departed. The soldiers seized the weapons cache and took the ill man prisoner. They also knew about the ruse of wearing peasants' clothing and set off to track down Che and Almeida's group. Fortunately for the remaining seven men, help was on the way. Through the 26th of July's peasant network, a key member of the network by the name of Guillermo Garcia had learned of their presence. He found Che's group and offered to be their guide. Guillermo also brought the good news that Fidel still lived. Guillermo knew the area and was able to use the peasant network to bring them safely to Fidel. By the time Che arrived on December 21st, Raul had also arrived with four other companions after his own difficult journey. The group was slowly coming back together after a catastrophic start. However, if you watched the way Fidel carried himself, you would have thought that this was exactly how he had planned on starting his revolution. By the time Che arrived, Fidel was already planning his next steps, already organizing the network, and already communicating with Frank Paz and Celia Sanchez to coordinate the next official actions of the 26th of July. The three had decided the next steps would be to consolidate around Fidel, and then prove to the world that the revolution was not only alive and well, but thriving. During the consolidation process, Che learned that his friend who had introduced him to the Cuban cause, Nico Lopez, had been killed. Che's group shared their harrowing journey to the Sierra Maestra with the rest of the survivors. When they got to the part about losing their weapons, Fidel was furious. He called the action an error and reprimanded the group with the following words. You have not paid for the error you committed, because the price to pay for the abandonment of your weapons under such circumstances is your life the one and only hope of survival that you would have had in the event of a head-on encounter with the army was your guns. To abandon them was both criminal and stupid. In order to reprimand the two leaders, Fidel confiscated the symbols of their command, the only weapons the group had kept, the two pistols. In its place, Fidel gave Che what was described as a bad rifle. Fidel then made a show of giving Che's pistol to a man who had not even been on the grandma, and instead was a leader of the peasant network, a man named Crescencio Perez. Fidel wanted to show how serious he was in regard to the importance of one's weapon, and he wanted to underlie how valuable he found the early adopters amongst the peasants. It worked because it brought Perez's loyalty to a new level, and it taught Che a valuable lesson. The emotional reproach may have also affected Che's physical health, as he suffered an asthma attack that same night. The bout with the asthma did not subside until the next day when Celia Sanchez's delivery of new guns arrived. Based on the timing of the weapon delivery, it is widely believed that Fidel was well aware that the new guns were near and decided to play up the reproach as a way to drive his point home, but then provide an immediate morale boost the next day when the guns arrived. I can't speak for all of the revolutionaries, but Che did admit years later, after the war, that Fidel's bitter reproach had stayed engraved on its mind for the duration of the campaign and even to that day. This was a quintessential example of Fidel's masterful ability to manipulate emotions to teach lessons and create a need in his followers to earn his approval. To me, it almost reminds me of one of the methodologies of dog training. 
establish the position of Alpha, and then dole out punishment and praise as appropriate to the point that his followers are waiting for him to tell them that they are a good boy and toss them a treat. Che in particular was sensitive to Fidel's disapproval and desperate to not only gain his approval, but maintain his position in Fidel's inner circle. Fidel, like all good trainers, immediately recognized Che's hurt feelings, and the next day he gave him the chance to regain his favor. Fidel had decided it was time to gain back some group morale by carrying out a military readiness test. He had decided to tell his men to prepare for a surprise attack, and he used Che to deliver the orders. In his diary, Che described his actions in the following way. I came running to give the news. The people responded well, with good fighting spirit. Che felt special to have been the one entrusted to give the orders, and proud of the way that the men still responded to him. Che felt he was back in Fidel's good graces, and the experience reinforced his will to fight to the ends of the earth to free Cuba. That same day, even more newer weapons arrived from Manzanillo, and the new arms basically erased the guns they had lost. It was then decided that the expedition's only other doctor, Faustino Perez, was to be dispatched back to Havana to assume the role of point man for Fidel. Perez decided to give Che his brand new rifle with telescopic scope. With the new gun in tow, all was right with the world. Not a whole lot happened over the next few days. In Che's words, just the small things of war. Fidel felt there was still much to be planned, and he wanted to wait to make too big of a move until he gave any other stragglers enough time to find the camp. He would not have the luxury of training new recruits to the same extent he had in Mexico, so it was vitally important that anyone who still survived be given the chance to rejoin. In the days of waiting, Che grew a little frustrated with the pace the rebellion was progressing. He wanted action, but Fidel was playing the long game. He was content to hold off on the next action until he was good and ready. Soon, though, it grew too dangerous to continue stalling in their temporary base of operations, and Fidel gave the order to decamp on Christmas Day. From my studies of military engagements and wars throughout history, I have always found that holidays make the perfect cover for troop movement. Enemy troops often grow complacent or have a greater want to drink and be merry on holidays. Fidel seemed to have found this to be true. However, for all their training back in Mexico in guerrilla warfare and the careful planning for which day to travel, one thing the group had not figured out was how to be quiet. As they happened by house after house, the peasants came out to see what all the ruckus was about. Luckily, each of the peasants were sympathetic to the cause and did not alert the authorities. Instead of a swift march to the next base of operations, it turned into a very slow procession attended by local supporters where the liberators of Cuba could get some face time with their future subjects. Fidel used the occasion to win support from the peasants and to hopefully foster some goodwill. Che chafed under the slow movement. He feared the dangers of moving so slow and leaving such a noticeable trail. Batista's army seemed to have taken the holiday off and never picked up on the trail. The rebels were able to move unmolested through the area and reach a place to set up a new camp. Given that the revolutionaries just had the chance to meet so many of the local peasants, I think it is time for me to give them a little bit of a general introduction. The people who lived in the Sierra Maestra fell into a few categories. First, there were the Guilleros, which was basically poor peasants. Though the term guiero has a little bit more meaning than just peasant. A good comparison to North American English might be the term hillbilly. To the people who lived in the urban centers of Cuba, such as Havana, the guerros were kind of uh, the butts of jokes. The stereotype was that they were poor, stupid, and almost always dirty. In truth, they were predominantly poor families or people who worked on large plantations. I will mostly just refer to them as peasants, and the peasants of the area categorized as falling into one of three designations. The unaligned, part of the peasant network, 
or what the revolutionaries called the Chivatazo. Chivatazo would translate as approximately to mean a peasant informer to the army. The Cuban army's uh, main presence in the area was through the Guardia Rural. After Fidel had landed, regular members of the military and guardsmen from the urban areas had been sent to combat the threat, but prior to the revolution, the rural guard had a long history in the area. The rural guard had a well-established network of Chivatazo that they used to keep tabs on Sierra Maestra's rather violent day-to-day. This violence was typically between the wealthier landholders and the poor squatters. Both groups had formed gangs to support one another and, more importantly, to enact reprisals against one another. This created an ever-escalating feud any time either side had one of their members abuse the other. In the Sierra Maestra, machetes and guns were the rule of law. The rural guard's duty was to attempt to keep the peace as best they could, but mostly the common people got by through pledging loyalty to a gang leader. One of the gang leaders of the Precarista, or squatter faction, was Crescencio Perez, the same man that I mentioned earlier who Fidel gave Che's pistol. Crescencio Perez was born in the area and had risen to a leadership role through often violent means. He had reportedly murdered countless individuals who had tried to stand in his way. He was also said to be quite popular with the ladies, as it was rumored that he had fathered somewhere around 80 children. In truth, not much further is known about Crescencio Perez. He will not survive the revolution, and his questionable past made him an individual Fidel decided to largely allow to go unmentioned. It is estimated that through his position as a gang leader, Perez had a network of peasants approximately 50,000 strong. It is also known that the individual who guided Che to Fidel, Guillermo Garcia, was a member of Perez's network and was specifically sent by Perez to aid the group. Perez and his people seem to also have been in the drug business, but that is seldomly mentioned. By all accounts, Fidel did not seem to care about Perez's morals or ties to drugs. Fidel only cared about the network and the support. As they say, beggars can't be choosers. The day after Christmas, 1956, safely in a new temporary base, Fidel decided it was time to assemble his Estado Mayor, or General Staff. Organization was very important to Fidel, and that organization all started with a well-defined leadership structure. His initial General Staff was to be a five-member team, with Fidel serving as the Commandant. He would hold control over any final decisions, but the staff would be key contributors. Next on the staff was Crescencio Perez. Perez was already the leader of the largest contingent of the peasant network, and it is likely that his continued loyalty and support hinged on receiving official command post. In order to confirm just how important Perez was to the cause, Fidel gave the third position to Perez's son. The fourth slot was assigned to Universo Sanchez. Sanchez is most often described as Fidel's bodyguard. We very briefly mentioned him back in episode 1.10 when discussing the execution that occurred at the Rancho San Miguel. Universo Sanchez was Fidel's aide who was interviewed for the Skulk's biography. Sanchez was one of Fidel's most trusted companions and had been since the very beginning. The fifth and final member of command was our man Che Guevara. Outside of the general staff, Fidel created two other command positions called platoon leaders. Each of these platoon leaders were to be the leader of a group of five men. The platoon leaders were Raul Castro and Juan Almeida. The group had successfully moved locations without notice and now had a new command. It may not seem like much, but this change filled the men with optimism after their close calls. Fidel called the group to stay in this new hideout a few more days while he communicated with his contacts in Santiago. Fidel had demanded the Santiago leader, Celia Sanchez, sent him more volunteers. He did not care if they came from the peasant network or the Santiago cells. 
He just wanted more bodies so that he could actually fill a decent-sized fighting force. The new volunteers would not arrive at their current location, but a few local peasants who had tracked their movements did offer their services to the cause of Cuban freedom. New, unsolicited recruits was an amazing development for Fidel's revolution. Fidel always knew that his rebellion would not be won by the men he had brought from Mexico, but through fresh recruits from the Sierra Maestra, and even though they had not even won a battle yet, they already had their first six recruits. Six recruits may not sound like much, but after losing two-thirds of their initial force, every new member counted. After nearly going extinct, the rebel army was growing once again. On December 30th, Fidel decided it was time to move his army deeper into the mountains. Once they reached a new base, some light training of the new recruits commenced. Some bad news accompanied the arrival at the new base. Batista's regular army was sending a new contingent to the Sierra Maestra to beef up the hunt for Fidel. As we will now be spending a long time in the Sierra Maestra, I think it is a good time to pause the narrative and describe our setting a bit further. The Sierra Maestra is the highest area in all of Cuba. It lies just off the Caribbean coast on the southeastern side of the island. It rises sharply from the coast until it reaches its highest point, Pico Turquino, whose elevation is 1,974 meters or 6,476 feet. Its quick rise made the area rather inaccessible to the government and large-scale operations. That inaccessibility had allowed the Sierra Maestra to remain one of the last remaining true wildernesses in all of Cuba. The indigenous rainforest not only survived, but it continued to flourish as it was impossible to reach by large foresting machinery. This ensured that it would never be chopped down by a large operation, as the difficulty would negate any potential profits. That inaccessible rainforest was to be the rebels' home. The local peasants would help them navigate the wilderness for the next two years, and Batista's army would learn that it is nearly impossible to fight against a guerrilla force in a thick rainforest. The terrain and persistence would eventually lead Castro's little band to ultimate victory. New Year's Day 1957, exactly two years before Batista's eventual overthrow, brought new details of the enemy's plans and a new urgency for the insurgents. It is reported that 400 soldiers loyal to Batista were on the way to the mountains. The day also brought non-stop rain, but even with the rain, the news of the army reinforcements meant that the rebels could no longer delay, and they set off on a muddy march through the wilderness. By the 5th of January, the march was bearing fruit, as they could see the peak of Pico Caracas sticking into the sky ahead of them. Pico Caracas was the first of the series of jungle-covered mountains that made up the Sierra Maestra's central spine. Once they reached that mountain, they would be in the safest position they had been in since before the landing of the Grandma. Che explained the success of the new positioning as follows. The perspectives are good because from here to La Plata is all steep and forested, ideal for defense. The group took a break from the march in the Mulatto Valley on the flanks of the mountain and received nine of the promised volunteers from Celia Sanchez. They could not stay in that spot long, though, as contradictory reports came in about how close the army was to their position. Finally, it came out that an informant had told the army about their location, which necessitated the march continued in haste. As they hiked higher, they were able to see a small contingent of naval marines descend upon their previous position. Che pressed Fidel to ambush the marines, but Fidel held off. He was not yet ready to engage the enemy for the first time. Fidel had already chosen his first location for combat, and he was not going to risk a misstep in their first real action without a proper plan. Instead, they continued up the mountain. Che described Fidel's plan for the first attack in a diary entry dated January 10th. Fidel's plan is to carry out an ambush and escape to the forest with enough food for several days. 
It doesn't seem bad to me, but it's a lot of weight to carry. My plan was to form a central camp with abundant food, and from there send out assault troops. Much like Che was in the days leading up to the rebels' first attack of the war, I'm going to leave you all wondering if Fidel's plan will actually work. That's right, this is where we end today's episode. I hope you all have enjoyed the episode, and I hope to have the next episode out to you with less wait time than this one. Thank you all for listening, and be sure to subscribe so that you do not miss the battle at La Plata. The Aura of Greatness podcast is available on all major podcast apps, including Apple Podcasts, Acast, Stitcher, Google Play, and many others. I would also personally appreciate it if you would take a moment to rate the show on iTunes. I know it can be a hassle to do so, especially if you not even use Apple Podcasts, but every review really does go a long way towards growing the show. In addition, if you are on Facebook, please head over to the show's page and give it a like at facebook.com slash Podcast. If you have questions or would like to contact me, you can do so through the Facebook page or by emailing me at auraofgreatnesspodcast at gmail.com. Lastly, you can also find me on Twitter at TravStory. All right, that does it for my show notes. I hope you have enjoyed listening to the Aura of Greatness podcast, episode 1.13, The Small Things of War. Until next time, cheers.